Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. I speak with a man who has dedicated his life to investing in people and has become one of Team GB's best coaches to always strive to be better tomorrow than today. Episode 17, Joe McDonnell. Are you good? Yes. We, we have touched down. We did it. How you been? It's really gorgeous, good. It's a gorgeous face on a Friday morning. I tell you what, I wish my wife would say that. <laughs> you put up with too much, mate. I was trying to get a real private room because we'd probably end up swearing. We're not allowed to swear on the podcast, are we? You can do what you like, Joe. No one's ever told you any different all your life, have they? (laughs) How have you been, mate? Yeah, not too bad. It's been really busy. What have you been doing? Uh, Well, the job at the uni, it's kind of, it's supposed to be 50%, so two and a half days a week. So what job are you What job is that at uni? Head of Paris Sprints. And recruitment. And you're doing that for two and a half days a week? It's supposed to be. Seven days a week. <laughs> but it, it depends on what you want out of the job, doesn't it? You know, if I just did a two and a half days a week, it'd be, it'd be really hard to get what I want out of it. And then with the athletes that I'm coaching as well, the British athletics athletes. So some of it crosses over because some of them are students. And they're all based here at the uni anyway. So... It blends, it blends in with what I'm doing with uh, British Athletics and what I'm doing with the uni. So all kind of rolls into one job. But it's probably about <laughs> 10 days worth of work in seven. Yeah, yeah, about that. But the wife will be happy with that, won't she? She doesn't get to oh, see she, it then. She loves it. She can tie my boyfriend coming in there really well. <laughs> I was now, going now, to say, I, now I was you going to say it saves me a job. <laughs> the thing is mate and now you can bank transfer the girls are happy because they don't have to see you to get cash they already know my numbers like they just sent me a message saying dad I've took this <laughs> I saw I see that you've got this much left over so I've taken it brilliant that's it oh dad I need this after, after they've taken it not I needed this I cannot have this I need this what do you need it for? We've seen this pair of Jimmy's shoes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so how's the, how's the coaching going? It's great, to be honest with you. I mean, some of it is tough at the minute because the, the athletes have had 14 months of just training with no competition. And I think that's brought on a lot of issues on its own because they've not had that cycle of training, competing, rest, training, getting stronger, getting a niggle, getting over it, training, getting back to competing. It's just been constant training. So now, because all the competitions have started really quickly, some athletes are opening up earlier than they would have done because they haven't competed for 14 months. Some of them think they're ready to compete, but because they've not been in that competition environment, and I think there's probably more psychological issues now we're probably seeing more mental health issues where people have got out of how to deal with that stress management of 
getting ready to compete, having a niggle, but forgetting about it and going and running. So I think was that, and this is only my personal opinion, that I just think there's a lot more mental health issues that we're seeing there with athletes just struggling to cope with all of a sudden that demand of expectation. Do you think that is so mental ill health or do you think that is like performance related or is there a mixture of both? I think it's a mixture of both. Um, so if you take some of the uni students that are high achievers, you've got someone that pre in 2019, really high achiever academically, really high achiever from an athletics point of view, and they could deal with it. They had a way of dealing with it. They didn't realise how much um, mental stress they were dealing with to cope with it. So it's like, um, it's like an apprenticeship. You learn how to do that. Then all of a sudden, they've not had to do it for 14 months, 15 months. So they get used to not having all that pressure again, not having expectation, not having stress. And now it's, it's come upon them very, very quickly because all of a sudden, oh, there is championships on and we know six weeks out and there isn't a the time to build up that. Even though they've got the experience, they've nearly forgot how to handle it. I didn't realise how much they dealt with, you know, whilst they were in the thick of it. So how have you managed to deal with that 14 months yourself as a coach? And what have you done to help the athletes? Because it's been a pretty incredible year and in, in for all the wrong reasons, really, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really unknown because it's, it's not a situation that any of us have... I mean, I've had athletes that have been injured for long periods of time but they've still been around other athletes competing. And that brings stresses on the athlete anyway. But they're still around that. The environment. The environment of people dealing with that stress. And, and people learn from other people observing and stuff, whether they know they do that or not, they do. Um, for me as a coach, the, I, lockdown was great. I've got to be honest with you. Because it really, not, and I was busier than I'd ever been. The first three months, everybody was locked down. Nobody did anything. There was no aeroplanes. There was nothing in the sky. The boyfriend would have been, wouldn't have been happy because he wouldn't have had to come around though, would he? I was sending her out. <laughs> for her hour exercise. Yeah, go, go for your hour exercise a day. Make sure you come back sweaty and have a shower. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, No, but I mean, for me, because I'm so used to being ultra busy, and having loads of people all the time. It got me to the point, because of government guidelines, I couldn't have kind of five people in a group. Or sorry, I could have five people in a group, but couldn't have any more than that. So I was doing a lot of one-to-one coaching, one-to-two coaching. So some of the stuff that you might miss with an athlete because there's a big group, you start really doing... um, what I call a value stream map on an athlete where you kind of look at the whole plan and you look at the whole athlete and you break it down into kind of smaller bits, break everything they do down into smaller bits. You don't normally get an opportunity to do that. Well, I don't anyway. So uh, were the, because, am I right in saying that the initial lockdown last year was everyone carte blanche and, yeah. then, and then professional sport was then in certain situations, allowed to continue to train. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, So there was athletes that were given elite status 
could then come and train. They were still governed by the government guidelines of, you know, when it was one-to-one coaching back in March, April, May last year, you couldn't have any more than one person, which was fine. Um, and then as a as elite sport went along, that changed. But you still had to have social distancing, rightly so. You still had to wear masks in certain scenarios. Um, I as a coach had to wear a mask all the time. Um, athletes had to wear a mask if they were doing low-level activity. But as soon as they were doing anything that was really intense, they could then take the mask off. You couldn't have two athletes running next to one another on the track. They had to be at least two lanes apart, which is two metres. Um, so there was lots of different things. So consequently, you never had any more than two people on the track with you. So your, your actual coaching ratios improved as a result? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I learned, I'm not going to say I, I learned a lot more, although I did learn some stuff. A lot of it was stuff that you sometimes don't get a chance to have a look at because you've got a bigger group. And then within that group, you have priorities within that group. So that could be someone coming up to a major competition or they're a priority athlete because they're a funded athlete and they get a little bit more focused attention and the rest of the athletes improve because they're involved with that person. Does that make sense? Yeah, that no, does. It does. Yeah. So how, um, did, so how did you, you know, you're saying that the, the athletes were, that they felt that they're not prepared for competition. The games is not that long away. So no. how have you managed to reassure them? What has the training changes been like to accelerate that preparation, I, I suppose? Because there's not a lot of opportunity for competition before the Games happens in, what, September, is it? Uh, well, if the Olympics is middle of July. So the athletes will start going away. Um, the Paralympics will go away on the 16th of August. So it's about 13 weeks, 12 weeks. And the opportunity for, and so especially with the para-athletes, because they haven't been able to travel, because the majority of the para-athletes have all been vulnerable. So they, they've been worse hit because they haven't been able to get into some training venues. They haven't, competition hasn't been opened for them. Um, so it's like internal competition that you do in training, a little bit more testing than you might normally do, specific to, well, if this was a normal year, you would have been racing on this date and this date. So what I'll do is put in testing for those dates and do the program as if you were going to be having a race and then test on that day. I normally test every four or six weeks so that if I'm going off the curve a bit, it's easy to drag it in. Um, although you kind of test every day with bits, but that general test is, has that last block been successful. Has it done what I wanted it to do? And if it hasn't, it's like doing a project, you kind of go back to that toll gate and go, what have I missed? What can I put in the next block to bring it back in again? Looking at the Olympics and the Para Games and the pandemic globally, do you see that Team GB are either have been advantaged in terms of the way that our country's dealt with the lockdown and the restrictions? Because every country has lockdown means something slightly different. Obviously, your team would have looked at other countries like the States and other, other big competitors. Is it roughly comparable in terms of the restrictions or, or, or rules around how athletes could train? Or do you see that there will be 
will there be a noticeable difference come the games? So we can, I can only kind of tell you what I, we've been told that's been happening. So if I have a look at the States and I look at the Olympic athletes that are preparing there, it doesn't look like they've ever stopped. So Dave, I'm going to compare them with the same as what we've seen with football and rugby, where it's kind of, other than the initial first three months, it's not really stopped. They've just carried on doing what they've been doing. Places like Holland, I believe, and a few of the other countries have literally got their key Olympic and Paralympic athletes into an academy. So they've been living like the elite athletes hotel here at Loughborough. They've been they've been living and training in the academy with regular testing. So, and it, I suppose it's been difficult to come up with a plan. But in retrospect, I suppose what I would have done was more testing every day would have brought that in sooner. So they, the athletes, because it's their job, it's their livelihood. And it's not like you get a job and, you know, you put money into a pension and you're there for 40 years and then you leave and you get a nice lump sum. This is a short-lived career. You know, so a lot of the athletes will have lost a lot of time because of the pandemic. Are they better prepared? That's going to be, if I look at the world champs that was just on, um, Holland were amazing. And you can see whatever they've done is really well. They're not a big country, you know what I mean? But whatever plan they've put together is well. Australia have prioritised their Olympic athletes and Paralympic athletes for vaccines so that they can carry on. I suppose every country makes decisions and at the end of the day, this it, this is only sport. You know, in, in the reality, this is only sport. So the effect that it has is much bigger than someone, you know, jumping high or jumping far or running really quick. You know, so the reality of it is, you know, the amount of people that have died because of it, it's just, you know, it's just, you just can't imagine. And people that have been affected by that must be horrendous. Because for them, the ones that have lost someone, actually, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know. No, so it's, could it's, we handle it? Could we handle it differently? Yeah, we probably could. Probably could have done. But you know, it is what it is. It was an unknown problem. It's, it's good. It's good context to put that in. Hmm. When the do any of the athletes feel a little bit disappointed that about this Olympics? Because what I mean by that is that. The crowds might not be there; it might be minimal. Um, the the buzz, the, the the so so for some of the the athletes that have been to games before, do they still view this games in the same light and as as the other ones, or you know, or is there a little bit of disappointment that it's not going to be what they would see as a an Olympic games? I think there is a bit of that. I think for some athletes that were coming, that are coming to the end of their career, they were looking forward to last year because they were looking forward to finishing their career and trying to finish it on a, on a high, either with a medal or what, whatever it was. Um, and now they've got to go on an extra year. So that may have done them a disservice because they're a year older. But they've had a year's kind of quality training. For some, it will have helped. For others, it won't. For the new athletes coming in, the ones that were 18 years old last year, it would have been just... That year too young have had a year's worth of 
development and training and maturity that and we're seeing some of them really starting to step up now in this last year coming up to an Olympics. So they got an opportunity as a 19-year-old going into an Olympics, have never been to a Games and they're coming out with world lead times. Amazing. You know, so it swings and roundabouts and it's that natural... Um, it's nearly like a circle of life where someone goes, someone comes in. And I think there'll be, we'll probably see more people retire after this one than we would have done. But then we've got the Commonwealth Games next year. So how many of them will try and string it out for an extra year, which is understandable. The home games is massive. So can you just explain the Olympic cycle in the context of the next games is going to be three years time. And people that don't know about Olympic cycles will think, oh, that's, a, that's ages away. That, what, that wouldn't have an effect. What effect does that have on your training cycle and your preparation? Because you will already be looking towards Paris, is it? Yeah. The Paris Games? Paris. Yeah. You're, you would have looked at that maybe two years ago when it, or when it was announced. So what effect yeah. does a three-year cycle have on your, on, your, on your preparations or doesn't it? Well, we're having major games like that within a really short space of time. They're still going to want to put in Europeans. There's a Commonwealth Games. There's a couple of World Championships. There's some there's an Olympics three years apart. So, so why so, is it a short space of time? So, for people that wouldn't that might be listening to this that don't understand the Olympics and why it's four years, why three years is a long time for anybody. Why is that a short space of time for an Olympic cycle? Because of the process of development of an athlete um, and within that four years, you get an opportunity to someone to get stronger and develop. And that's not short. You know, sometimes because the athletes race, let's say, between April and September, that gives you from November back to March to do some a lot of strength work, a lot of development work, physically change someone. And that's not a long period of time. Anyone that's been to a gym that's tried to lose a shed load of weight or put on a shed load of muscle, it, you know, it doesn't happen in, in a few months. It happens over time. And then you have to develop, you have to get the athlete to understand how to use that extra strength or power they've got or extra speed. So it's a, it's a long process. I always describe it as an apprenticeship. It's a four-year apprenticeship. And year one, you kind of, you're at the, absolute bottom of the ladder because you kind of don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you need to do and you sit and you build a plan and through that year you start teaching someone how to work with that plan and then the second year they get a little bit more competent so you can increase the learning the loading getting them stronger then they get a competition two years before an Olympics or the Paralympics or a World Games and that's an opportunity to go and test that because that's against the best in the world, because the Europeans is very different from running against, you know, world championships or an Olympics or a Paralympics. So that's two years in, you get to test what you've done for the last two years, has it worked? And if it has, great. You continue on that process and put extra development in. If it hasn't, you don't go back to the drawing board, but you do a really good analysis on what hasn't worked, what do I change? And I've got two years to get that right. So you work in predominantly in para sport. 
what is the uh, fu- yeah. what is the fundamental difference between para sport and able body sport what what the, the the it might be a bit of an obvious question but when you're when you're coaching and when you're managing these athletes what are the extras that other coaches wouldn't have to consider so so my honest opinion is it's just coaching because you're dealing with really talented athletes you're dealing with people that have got you know whether it's an impairment that they've got through a catastrophic injury or it's an impairment that they've been born with that's where there's some differences because if someone is born with an impairment their knowledge of the impairment the understanding of the impairment the understanding of themselves how they cope with it is is great um, if it's someone that's had a catastrophic event they it takes them a long time to learn to cope with you know if if they've had an amputation stub management you know they don't realize how critical it is and they get a scratch and they go oh it's just a scratch and then it turns into a full-blown infection and they're on crutches for the next two months so i suppose the fundamental difference coaching wise is adaption of some kit and to allow the athlete to do exactly what you'd get an able-bodied athlete to do um, and still get the same benefit out of it. And that takes a little bit of thinking outside the box and imagination because some people will look, especially at some of the stuff I do, some people will look and go, really? Does that really work? Yes, it does. But you just have to think outside the box because we're para-athletes. It's 90% of it is generic, 10% of it is just miles away from, you just have to sit and think, and it's very individualised what the athlete needs. Because he, not- Yeah, I was going to say, because even even just getting from the whole athlete holding area to trackside for every single athlete that you'll be coaching will be distinctly different. Whereas able yeah. body, they just walk in, no problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we'll think about the scenario that we had when we were in Sydney, when they went, yeah, we're just going to, go up this concrete footpath across this Tarmacadam road, up and down two steps. And we went, yeah, that's great. What about someone that's on blades? Oh, yeah. What about the people that are in racing wheelchairs? Oh, never thought about that. Yeah. You know, so, and that's where you you kind of go and you do that. And I do it with every place that I go to, even with a pair of games that I go to, I do the walk. I walk where the athletes are going to go and I'll bring a visually impaired athlete with me. And I'll try and bring someone that's on the blade where I mean, just go for a walk. You go, you know, what's your barrier? What's going to cause you an issue for you getting to the line that's going to affect you being prepared to get on that line? And sometimes it's not a physical preparation. It's a mental barrier because all of a sudden they have to consider something that they didn't need to consider. <clears throat> so it's at that point you're kind of going, you need to highlight it. My job if I get to a games or any competition that I go to is to facilitate the athlete to get to the line thinking about nothing other than running quick. Everything is, they can just go there and they have no barriers. I mean, that's a really important concept because yeah. you would, it's no disrespect to anyone that hosts major games, but there is an assumption made that it will be okay rather than finding out that it's okay. And even at that level, it sometimes invariably doesn't turn out to be appropriate because of the variety of complex impairments or injuries that people have suffered or, or they have 
And you exacerbate that then into everyday life where everyday life definitely isn't conducive to some of your athletes or wider disability, that becomes a bit of a problem because we start assuming that it's okay. Uh, it'll be all right, well, but it's not. And it, causes, it, does, it does cause quite a lot of concern for the athletes. And it's a really interesting point you made there about all you're interested in them racing well, the other stuff we just need to take care of. So, if it, I mean, I had a chat with someone from Luffy University who has come up with a, a map route system. So if you imagine a, a visually impaired person that uses cane, well, this is, I suppose, the best way to describe it. It's like, you know, the, um, the handheld controller for a Wii? Mm. So imagine one of them, but it talks you through directions of where you're going. Now, I work on campus here at Luffy University, an amazing campus. I haven't got a clue where I'm going. If someone says, can you go to this building? It's not easy to find. Imagine if you're visually impaired. You know, so the visually impaired people, and that's in everyday life. How easy is it for someone that's visually impaired to find a way to where they want to go in any town in London? It must be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, it must be an epic, mate. Mate, how do you get into coaching, sprint, athletics? How did, how did, how did you do that? What, what did Joe do before? Uh well, my background, my background, as you can tell, is kind of rugby and boxing. Why well, you're such a beautiful looking man. Um, but, and you know what? Someone asked me this question a while ago and I had to sit and think. And I've always, I've always, I was at a, when I played rugby years and years and years ago, when I started playing, I always got involved with the coaches helping doing stuff. Same at the boxing club. I always happy to lead stuff or do stuff. Um, then when I moved up to Loughborough to come to Loughborough College and Loughborough University I did a sports development management diploma up here and I worked at a place called Mountfields Lodge which was for introducing kids that had been in trouble with the police back into society but through sport so joining rugby clubs, joining football clubs. And some of the kids that came along had impairments. Was this back, were... back home, did you say? No, no, this is here in Loughborough. Oh, okay. I just, I, I, just, I was just, I was coaching kids with impairment. And I, I'll be honest with you, I generally never seen the impairment because I was just coaching kids. And I never really looked at, I just looked at how can I make this work for this individual so that they can get the best experience there what we're doing and um, so it kind of fell into it. it was never I never sat and went oh that's an amazing arena to go walk in and then I some I coached this visually impaired girl because she couldn't get anyone to help her run so I got her someone I, I didn't know anything about guiding taught someone to guide her um, and then I seen Sam Ruddock uh, playing American football and I had a chat with him he said he had cerebral palsy he wanted to learn to run quick or quicker than he could. So I did some work with him. He ended up going to London. Then after that, a little girl called Sophie Han came down and ended up coaching Sophie Han. Then Libby Clegg and Sean Burroughs and Tom Young. And it was just like a bit of a snowball effect that, you know, Joe McDonald's got some sort of magic potion that makes someone run quick. And all it is is just these are 
are amazing athletes. All you need to do is stop looking at the impairment and start looking at their ability because it's not about disability, it's about their ability to do what they can do. And that's really, really key because once you give someone or you help someone to understand how capable they are, a lot of the barriers get broke down. And so, you know, jumping over a hurdle or, you know, Libby Clegg would jump over a hurdle. She's blind. She did dancing on ice blind. You know, this is a capable woman. You know, people were saying, oh, surely she can see. <laughs> she can, but very, very little, probably about your hand, eight inches away from your face. That is it. Or I've been in a cow or <laughs> going to a, an appointment for her to get an MRI. And we'd been there about four months before. It was on our ankle for an MRI. I, this was the second time we went. I stuck me sat and I've on. We sat and I went, take the next turn left. Libby went, it's not the next turn left. It's the one after that. When Libby, the sat-nav says, and she went on that much. She went, you know what? I'm going to follow you. And if we're late, we're late. And she was spot on. And you just, it's a, the ability of, you know, Tom Young, who a coach has got uh, an impairment called neurofibrosis. We've got Sean Burroughs has got cerebral, cerebral palsy. He went and ran at non-eating the other week. They only run against able-bodied people and they're winning races. And this has nothing got to do with having a disability. This has got to do with having an ability, a natural ability to run quick. And it's your job to bring that out. Mate, and that, and that is something that, I, that's what I fell in love with, with the military cohort. Exactly what you were saying is, the angle that I see it from is that you've got an ability, you've got a, not just a responsibility, but you've got an opportunity to help people realize their ability. And for me, that's quite special. And that became a bit of a responsibility to go, no, we need to do this. We absolutely need to be there, not to help. But JJ Chalmers in another podcast coined it very well. He said about having the equity, not the equality. So you provide an equity for someone to perform, not just trying to make it even, which yeah. was a really nice touch to that. And it's, it's true, isn't it, that? I think sometimes people perceive a barrier because of what society believes that barrier is. And so if you've had a catastrophic injury where your impairment is being cast upon you in an in unfair way or whatever, you've, in your head, some people will think, well, I, I can't do this. I can't go and, you know, run. Well, yeah, you can. We just need to have a mechanism or some way of allowing you to be able to realise that. And that's sometimes the thinking outside the box. I've got a young chap that I'm coaching. was an ex-professional rugby player, 20, 21 years old, tib and fib fracture, nothing serious, got compartment syndrome, had the bottom part of his leg amputated. I got chatting to him just on the off chance and he said, well, I'm struggling to do any kind of sport. We've got him a blade. He started to run. And now he's got, he's got aspirations now. And he was, a, he was a, an outside centre, inside centre. So he's going to have a little bit of pace. Well, looks a bit like a girl, but going to have a little bit of pace. About <laughs> but I mean, this kid now, he's now back training kind of five, six days a week 
really focused on what he wants to go and do. He can see an opportunity in front of him to carry on in sport. He's, he's 21, 22 years old. He potentially could have been sitting at home and never taken part of sport again. It's life-changing. I think that's, that's the significance. And we can underestimate that in that chance meet that it's life-changing stuff for people where he may well have declined and and who knows where he would have ended up. And now he's got a sense of purpose, direction and, and goals and to achieve and realises that he can do something rather than he look focus on what's been taken away from him. Do you know what the biggest, um, one of the things that I look at, and when I worked at Pepsi, it was the same thing. I always tried to look in the teams that I had for people that had like their talent to develop. That's your job as a coach. If you don't believe people have got the ability to develop, you've probably stopped believing in your ability to develop people. Um, and one of the things that I'd love to see with my job that I've got here is I, how many para, how many coaches do you see that have an impairment? I mean, I don't know what it's like to have an impairment. You know, so... Why haven't I? Why isn't there more coaches around? I want to develop coaches. And this kid that I was talking about, he's now got a real interest in coaching and he's taken a, um, a sports coaching degree now between the college and Loughborough University. And, you know, why are there not more wheelchair coaches that are in wheelchairs? I mean, Noam's, uh, Naomi Aidy is one of the first wheelchair coaches that we've got that's actually in the wheelchair that knows what it's like to be in the wheelchair. I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? Why I spoke are people to her last that, week. We did, did it. We did a recording last week. It yeah. was hilarious, mate. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, why basketball coaches, you know, wheelchair basketball, why are the majority of the wheelchair basketball coaches all able-bodied? And I, I, just, I just find it bizarre that it feels like that people only feel like they have an access to partaking in the sport, to be involved in the sport. Because most people that coach don't believe that. Most people that coach that after playing or whatever it is, if I fancy doing a bit of coaching, I'll go and do a bit of coaching. Where are all the athletes that have had impairments, that have got so much experience, personal experience? Why aren't we seeing them in coaching environments? That's the bit that I find. And they've got massive value to add then. Because they've got so much empathy with the person that's in a chair or on a blade or whatever. So for anyone, obviously I will edit this, but for anyone that thinks that the sounds is slightly different now is because you've now moved from your office to your car because you can't yeah. even do one simple task and just sit in a quiet room. Just doing what Joe wants to do again, aren't you? It's about thinking outside the box, isn't it? To be fair, I, I, did, I, did, I did have a room booked and I went in. And because I'm kind of quite low down on the pecking order. You like that? Got bumped out. Yeah. Hoofing. So, mate, where did... So, how did the Invictus Games fall on your radar? Where did that come I, from? I got asked to do it years ago by Shelley Holroyd. Um, she said, would you be interested? She's the trolls coordinator for British Athletics. Was she at the London Games? Um... I'm not sure. Brunette lady. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Ex-Javelin troll, ex-GB Javelin troll. And she asked me years ago, and at the time, 
uh, when I walked up um, Pepsi, walked up Walkers, I was uh, a shift manager. So it was 12 on, 12 off, four days a week, four on, four off. So I coached them four days off and then squeezed in what I could do on my, ter- on my kind of hours off that I had. But I just couldn't take on any more walk because I had a couple of Paralympians that were doing really well. As you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, I just didn't have the time. But it looked like a great project. And it was Dave Henson that said to me, he went, what was that? No, actually, I hadn't met Dave Henson at that point. And then I'd met Dave and Dave mentioned it to me. And he went, look, you, he said, you're humoring that. He said, you'll get on great with the lads. He said, you'll have a great time. And that, I suppose, was the catalyst when I went, oh, do you know what? Let's just, let's just give it a go and see what happens. And, uh, yeah, I mean, from the first time that I met, it kind of a, a, a lot of the beneficiaries that were coming through, you kind of get a really good buzz and you kind of go, this is going to be a crack. You know what I mean? You just know that you're going to have a right laugh. So sort of on, on the on the breath, you're going, what the... Like when he was listening to the banter that goes down. Yeah, I mean, because they're all a bit of the knuckle, aren't they? You know, I'm trying to be all PC and, yeah, <laughs> just, and you're sitting there, you're kind of going, yeah, okay, that's fine. You're going to go, fucking hell, did you just really say that? And one of the first people that I met, I mean, a great story, but one of the first people that I met when I did the first one was Kelly Gamfield coming in. Oh, she's gorgeous, isn't she? And she, she came in holding the back of our wife's coat, Sarah, <clears throat> wouldn't speak to anyone. And literally, you know, I honestly thought, I, what do I do here? Do you know what I mean? Not that I couldn't spend time helping to coach that individual, but it just looked like a massive, huge task. Well, you, you've gone from te- you've come from coaching elite athletes like talented at the top end of, of that of their scale really to seeing someone who's visually impaired with no confidence whatsoever and probably didn't even think that she even deserved to be there that's a completely no. different concept yeah and then because because the funny thing was i seen her standing behind sarah so she looked like the most vulnerable person in there so i'd got no experience with anyone with PTSD or anything like that and there was <laughs> there was a, a few of the lads that came through that I thought, fucking hell you know what I mean Just, but when Sarah was there and I went over and I tried to chat to Sarah and, and there's no eye contact she's looking down all the time uh, and then when I was, like I said when I was chatting to Sarah and Sarah was doing all the talking for her and, uh, and then a couple of the lads came in, and I can't remember who they are. But as soon as they came in, one of them just took the piss. And she changed like that. In an instant, she suddenly lit up and then spat back whatever it was she spat back at him. And, you, and it was the first time with Kelly that I kind of looked and thought, just two massively different people here 
in this same body. And you can see the one that wants to get out. And she felt really vulnerable because she was around something that was really unfamiliar um, and didn't know how, couldn't see what was in front of her, didn't know how to cope with it because there was no visual reference to it. But as soon as she heard that common language and common voice, you could imagine what she was like as an individual before any of the issues that she had with her sight. And a bright, bubbly, intense, interested person. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you kind of learn how to switch that person on then. You start seeing how the personality works and what makes them feel comfortable. And being, being an Olympic, Paralympic coach dealing with high-level athletes, she doesn't care. Do you know what I mean? She just wants someone that's just going to make her feel good, give her a nice experience, and her to walk away from that day feeling like she's got something out of it. And did, did you find that difficult initially? Like, what did you have to change about your coaching approach with the Invictus athletes than professional athletes, or, or was it the same? Um, so I think... Because it was a very new environment for me as well, I probably wasn't being Joe McDonald when I first met him. Because anyone that knows me is that they'll probably look and go, you are definitely not the most professional coach I've ever met in my life. Well, I would like to follow that up with a small little anecdote when I think <laughs> it was in Toronto. And I was basically, I'd, I'd say you'd had my pants down really with that team manager's meeting. Yeah, that? that was hilarious. Yeah, and he said, oh, could you just nip to that meeting for me? And I didn't have a clue. And I was sat there for three hours and I walked out and you just laughed at me. <laughs> and he said, anything? And I went, no, because you didn't want to waste the time. But I remember shortly after that, you were on the track doing some training and I'm looking and I'm thinking, what is going on here? Because you're lent over, you're in shorts, T-shirt and flip-flops so you're a you're a sprint, you're a sprint track coach bent over sorting some starting blocks out with your day sack round your head so it's fallen now over your shoulders and you're trying to sort the blocks out and I'm looking at you you're thinking what on earth is going on here but don't let looks looks for you that is deceiving I, do you know what I, I I remember that I remember you coming up and commenting me as well. And I think in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, when you said, I thought I must have looked like the hunchback in Notre Dame. The, the just... other countries must have been thinking, where did I get him from? They... <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, I mean, talking about Toronto, I mean, some of the things around, do you remember the gentleman's club that was there that he wouldn't let anybody in? No, I got... no one told me that? that, no. Up, up the other side of the hotel, they, would, they had their own run and track on the roof. A tree-lane oh, running track. Yeah, okay. No, I'm thinking of a different type of gentleman's club. Yeah. I do apologize. Oh no, no. No, this was this type of gentleman's club. They had they had a black line in yeah, it. They had, a, they had a, a 200 meter track on the roof, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And no one could get into it. And I managed to talk my way into it. And I got um Ian Young and Steve Seven. Seven, yeah. And he went, How did you get in? I went, Don't fucking ask. Yeah. As, but that's your job, you know. When you're a, when you're a, at a competition, so it's 
I've been at competition. So when I was at London 2012 with the World Champs, the um the Olympic Parkway a lot had had their competition before. We went in afterwards and the blocks that were in the warm-up area were the worst fucking blocks you've ever seen in your life. I mean, they were awful. They were like stuff that you'd give to 10-year-old kids from a school. And I just went, my athletes aren't training in them. So I walked out into the stadium, people saying, where are you going? And I'm just going to go and have a look. Walked out into the stadium, walked down to the 100-metre start line. And I went, are these the blocks? that are going to be using the competition. He went, yeah. And I went, right, I'm taking two sets of them. You can't take two sets of them. When they need the same blocks in the warm-up area as you do out here. And anyway, I just picked up two sets of blocks and walked away with them. And those, those, you could, you, you would not believe just people's faces were looking going, and then nobody stopped me. But do you not remember in Toronto, though, where, you know, the, uh, the little gazebo tents and it had the, <laughs> had the flags on it? And I'm, I've looked round and I'm like, what's he doing? And you've, you're putting extra flags on other gazebos and taking more space off of because we got there early, didn't we? Yeah. And I'm like, that's class. But then all, all the guys and girls, well, they, they were at the space, they had the shade, they had, we had, it was all set Everything. up to go, wasn't it? That's your job, isn't it? You know what I said at the very beginning about all of what you to do is think about is getting to that start line, either jumping high, jumping far or running quick. That's my job as a facilitator to do that. I want them to walk in and go. And especially because I, I, I've, I've said this in the meeting. I said this in the meeting just before um, the Invicted Games that we should have gone to uh, in Holland. I've learned more as an individual walking with Invictus athletes and the Invictus team that I have done in the environment that I walk in as a professional coach. I've learned more about um, people, different types of people and different stressful situations. Because as you know, that, you know, you get to, it's not like a Paralympic Games or an Olympic Games. <clears throat> Every, there's, there's loads of people wanting this to tick over as good as possible. And there's people throwing bodies at her to do stuff. And that's great, but the preparation of the athletes going into an Olympics or a Paralympics game is that setup where they've had four years of training. You know, they're ready to go. Everything has been hopefully laid on the plate for them to go and do it. We go to an Invictus Games. We've had six months' water training. These people, we want them to feel like they're the cream of the crop going into this Games. We want them to feel like it's a professional environment. If that's the case, they should feel special when they get there. And if the only bit that I can do at that point to make them feel special is so that they can walk into a tent, have the option of shade. I go and I don't know how many cases of flipping cold drink that I stole, but I did. Got, so people could just do what they want. They could sit there, enjoy the team environment, because Invictus is about that. You know, you go to a Paralympic Games or an Olympic Games, even though it's a team, it's an individual environment. The individuals, they get onto that, the heavyweight boxes, they get in there, there's one person in the ring. You know, there's one, you go to the Invictus Games, it's not, I don't care if people don't walk away with a medal. I want them to walk away with a great experience and something that makes them feel like they've achieved something. And that then drives them on 
to leave there and go and do something with their lives and feel like that they can still go and add quality and experience to whatever they do. Because that's the job of the Invictus Games. It's not yeah. about, you know, it's yeah. great to walk, walk away with medals. Don't get me wrong. We all want to do that. Look, I kept the medal tally when we were in Tokyo, uh, when we were in Toronto. You know, that drove me on. But I had a bigger tally for people that had hit personal bests. Yeah, it's important. You know, and and I, But it's also important, like, you know, for people that might not understand, that think, oh, Invictus Games, well, what's the point? It, it's great making people feel good. And it is, absolutely. But there was a byproduct of that, of what people ended up going to do as a result of that. So just even in professional sport, I remember the London Games, Joe Townsend, he raced the 200-meter wheelchair uh, race. If he'd have done that in the Olympic Games in London he would have got a bronze medal with the time that he raced in the in the Invictus Games, hands down. And he doesn't even race that distance. No. You've got Dave Enson, who went on to win a bronze medal in the Rio Games at the 200 metres yeah. um, double amp. You've got Naomi Addy, who's, who ended up not just about sport, it was about she ended up getting a job that she never thought she would have the courage to go and get. And and these things were, were like JJ's kicked on, and it's helped him with his um, glamorous career in the in the BBC yeah, now. I know. Um, he's doing yeah, fantastic he stuff. Yeah, he is. He gets a makeup artist. He gets someone to do his They don't hair. do a very good job, though, do they? No, I tell you what, it's plastic surgeons they need. <laughs> but I, I remember, um, oh, mate, I was, I was thinking it then. So when I was, I was uh, poolside for the summon, Honestly, I couldn't believe it. So I was walking through the back to the athletes area, the the the, the warm up and cool down pool, and I bumped into this this American guy, and uh, I went like I was obviously I was busy doing something. I went, oh mate, watch where you're going, and he turned around to me, went, mate, I'm blind, and I felt, <laughs> mate, I felt about one inch tall, and I went, I'm so so sorry. I'm so sorry. And that was it then. I got absolute neat, neat stick. Have, for... have, I, have I told you about when I, uh, in Toronto, the way, I think it was the wheelchair basketball that was on. Was it the wheelchair basketball? I think it was the wheelchair basketball. And I went in to the toilets to have a piss. And I'm standing having a piss and Prince Harry comes in. And the security guard, security guard has stood at the back, right? And he's come in for a pee. And you know when you take a double take, I kind of looked and went, and I looked at him and I went, I suppose it's the wrong time for the selfie, is it? <laughs> he, just, he, he just fucking, he just laughed. He just laughed. Look, it's just, it was just, but that's the environment it was in, though. And I mean, you know, I, I learned, I worked with you um, on the athletics in Toronto and then the year later in Sydney. And I learned, you say that you learned a lot about yourself. I learned a lot about myself as well from working with you because not just about how athletics works. It's just, I remember you didn't, you don't go field a play that, that often. And I'm like, that's where the action is. Why wouldn't you want to be there? When I went to Sydney, I didn't even, I realized why. Because the emotion, you can't keep an emotional level. You can't, the highs and lows of being field of play all day for two days, it just is not good for you to be that pillar that the athletes need of calm. And I didn't realise that that's one of the reasons why 
until Toronto where it was just amazing, but it was this roller coaster that I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with. So Sydney, I, I wasn't um, until later on the day when we sat trackside for the, some of the the jumping competitions, but yeah, it was, um, it was, it was really, uh, you nearly didn't make the bit. Oh, mate. Mate. So I, I I was talking uh, to someone. Um, who was I talking to the other day? Um, it's one. Of, it's one of the lads at work, and I was saying about the podcast. I said I'm speaking. Who's who's you got next? He says I'm speaking to uh, Joe McDonald. Who's that? I said he's a human slug. <laughs> and they went, "What do you mean?" I did. I tell you what. It took me ages to get my sleep pattern right when I came back from Sydney. Never got it right. Well, it was bang on when he was in Sydney because I like we obviously were roomies, weren't we? And I remember coming back, there was on two occasions, it was like I was trying to, like, obviously, you know, Lummox here, trying to tiptoe back into the room. It wasn't from a night out, I just thought I'd uh, like to add. And I remember it was like half 11 at night and you were, I looked over at your bed and you had laid all of your, because t- you like your technology, you laid all your yeah. technology out, like OCD in one side of the bed. Yeah. And you were dead straight on the other, like a slug. I'm someone who kicks the duvet off and makes a big mess when I'm sleeping. And then in the morning when I wake up, you're still in the same position. You haven't moved. And the alarm goes off. And then you just sort of get up and crack on. And I'm like, I, if that were me, it'd be, the, the, I'd be breaking iPads and, and all sorts. But there was that and time. My first response is, do you want a cup of tea? Yeah, that was it. So that was, was going to say, so I got, you know, get, getting late. And then you wake up, you don't want a tea, mate. And I'm thinking... Uh, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, it's class. Good, it was good, good crack. Oh. It, was, it was a good crack. It is, it is interesting though. I, like you said about like the track side stuff, and that I very even at major games, literally, if I'm taking care of an athlete, I get ready, get them to call up, and then I go and pick them up after they've raced, and you pick them up in various states. They've either been really successful, done really well. So you walk them back and that sort of conversation is different or you pick them up and they haven't done well. And that's a different type of conversation because if they haven't done well, they've probably got another event at some stage. And what you're trying to do is mentally prepare them to go away and go, look, you know, how do you just park that, put it away and then focus on what you have to do next? But uh, some of those conversations are... And that's, I think... And I, I know, I mean, it's when they, they did a relay, when Joe Dillnut ran. Because that was big for me, because I knew kind of how Joe Dillnut was being affected and stuff. And so just, just explain, ha- just explain a, a little bit of backstory behind Joe. Um, so Joe has got a a functional movement disorder with his arms so he can't can't really move his arm and from a backstory point on because he was I, I believe he caught to do, doing his normal job um on tanks or something I think it was and um he's just in severe pain all the time he just can't do anything with his arm to the point that he's tried to have it amputated because of the pain, but he won't amputate it. Um, and I don't know whether that's a right or wrong decision. I mean, I'm not 
uh, a doctor, but his um, mental issues that he's had has is huge, and it's really sad because Joe Dillner is just such an amazing man. He's just a great person. Do anything for anybody, um, and he never looks happy with himself. And I, he has he had no faith in himself when he came down to run. He, had, he, he just had no faith he could do anything. So I brought him down to my main running group just so that he could be mixed in with people with um, different attitudes. He got to talk to Libby Clegg quite a bit. Um, Libby's had her own issues with mental health. And I think for him, it kind of helped that it's not just people that have had catastrophic events that kind of have these mental health issues. There are people that we perceive are okay. I mean, it's the, it's the biggest hidden injury of all, isn't it? You know, and because you can't see it, people don't believe it exists or they don't have an appreciation of it that it exists. And with Joe, Joe was on the verge of not coming to training, not going to the games because of how he was feeling. And for him getting the medal in the 400, that was probably the first time that was probably on the verge of tears watching someone just because it was, I just, it just watched someone. He must have forgot everything that was wrong. Everything that he had an issue with. And, he, he, you know, he went out and just ran amazing and got a medal. Uh, people weren't allowed on trackside, but I dragged his wife down the stairs onto trackside because I wouldn't let her pass because she needed to go and give him a hug. Um, yeah, and that's one of the reasons I don't go trackside because there's massive stories like that. But I wouldn't have missed Joe's race for the world. And then the relay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, and that was a massive emotional thing as well. You know, we go back to Kelly Ganfield. I, she, she's only female, visually impaired person to get a medal, I believe. Um, and that is that the the suggestion, was talking to Naomi about this um, yeah. when I was speaking with her, and it was the suggestion of having the, the world athletes there as well. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, it was the suggestion. I was talking to Naomi about the, the relay last week and made, we made the suggestion about having the, the world, world last leg yeah. to yeah. make it inclusive. But and that was, was the whole, that was my, just so you, when I went there, my objective was to get that relay on. I was going to do everything that I could so that we could have as many impairments on the track as one time in as fair a situation as possible for an event so that in a team sport, which is what Invictus is about, everybody got represented or as many as we could have got represented. So we started off with a visually impaired person into an amputee, into someone that um, had some sort of what I'd call a hidden physical condition. So that could have been neural or you know, back pain, stuff that people don't see, and then into a wheelchair so that everybody was on. And at the end, what you had is, is this massive crowd of people with loads of different impairments, all competing in a team sport against one another. 
There isn't another sport, there isn't another event where that happens anywhere in any sport. It was and incredible. If we've, got, if we've got the ability to do that, and we can put all those different people in a team environment onto a track to compete against one another in the biggest friendly environment that I've ever been in in my life, why wouldn't you do it? And yes. that was that, and that was incredible. Yeah, that was definitely a bit we of a We were the first ones ever to do it. <laughs> it was brilliant. It's just a shame the pub wasn't open after. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what, there was some, oh, flipping hell. I mean, just, I, I know the first day that we were in Toronto, and on the, the morning of the game, do you remember the buses turning up that didn't have access for wheelchairs? Oh, no, and, but, <laughs> yeah. And I remember Jane giving me a ring saying, are we getting on? I said, we're still downstairs. Like 40 minutes later, I was just supposed yeah. to leave. It just, but what was really cool was that, that that's where the prep work with Sarah Cecil came in because it was about um, controlling the controllables and, and refocusing. And, and, and the guys and girls were amazing. They just didn't. They, and it was that cohesion. They all got through it, through that stuff together. And, you know, a bus breaking down ordinarily is not a great deal. But when you're, when you're being preparing for this for 12 months, 18 months and you're getting on the bus to go and race your final and it breaks down. That is something that can yeah, yeah. derail you. So because uh, what was the um Scott Mina's missus? Uh yeah. Maddie. Maddie. So she went on ahead, you remember? Mate, that girl, been... that 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 woman, should I say, is incredible. Yeah. I don't understand how she can do what she does. Like she can probably spin 50 plates on one finger, standing on one leg with her eyes shut and writing a dissertation with her other. You know, she, yeah. she's unbelievable. unbelievable. I, I, rem I remember getting to the track and uh, she comes to me and she went, uh, this is what they've done. We've got all this sorted out. And I went, have you got? Because we were late for the first race, weren't we? <clears throat> and there was no call up. And then I went down and went, have you got a list? And he went, oh, we, we haven't got a race plan yet. And it took me about 50 minutes to sort out a race plan. But, but it was just, I mean, the great thing about it was that everybody just, the focus and the people that were there because of the skill level and the way they'd been prepared were in it, fixed it, got out. And the people that didn't see all that shit going on never realised yeah, and it's probably worth a mention now. Just, you know, you, you never see, you only ever get to see, even in, you know, when it, you talk more, more over elite sport where you'll see the race, the monumental effort from the support staff to get that person to the start line and then it's up to them. So yeah. it, even in training their support, their guidance, yes, the athletes got to do that, but they wouldn't be able to do that without the, the support crew and the people around them. So when they get to the, the start line, they are the ones then. There's nothing you can do. And to have that team is equally as important as the performance that you're expecting from that individual. Because if you don't have the right people in the right jobs and they don't function, the athlete will be affected by that as well. Yeah. And, you, you and, and that's and it's key, isn't it? And it's like, and 
like I said at the start is imagine all of those people doing all of those things and then you get to a games and there's barriers to take that person's focus off doing the one thing that all of those people have spent all that time trying to prepare them for and that's when you get there that's what you do you kind of go how do I one keep the momentum going so that athlete is thinking about nothing but doing what they need to do and that is that is very much what I saw when I was with Team Ireland in the Rio games and we were looking over at Team U, Team GB's block and it was like a military operation and some would look at that as if it's over the top but the main focus of the reason why they'll have their install team the main focus the reason why there was there was um the flags all over the, the the tower block and that there was concierge 24 hours a day and there was it's because they want the athlete to focus on the race and nothing else and so everything else is easy and it was yeah. like it was incredible to watch the efficiency of team uk in rio and how they they basically were like bulldozers to barriers the staff to that's a job yeah so so that thing that i did with the tents when we were in toronto when we went to rio we went to the track in rio and it was quite a bit away from where everything else was happening yeah the the race the, the running track was quite a bit away and we went in and the shoulders where all the tents were and everyone was kind of allotted one tent. And uh, Amanda Evans, who's one of the programme managers, went, oh, this is a bit of a small tent for us. And I went, well, do you want more tents? And she went, yeah. And I went, well, leave her with me. Well, right behind us was the South African tent. So, and was, in between... Was all the, the South African tent. Yeah. <laughs> and in between the tents, they're kind of knitted together with... A, a big thick lace all the way up and that's what separates them. So I just went, well, how many tents do you need? She said, well, we need at least two. And two side by side is okay, but if you can get two back to back, it means that wheelchairs can get in and out really easy. So I went around to the tent directly behind ours and South Africa had completely done theirs out with the flags, everything else they had on it. And the tent next to theirs was empty. So I literally, piece for piece, took it apart and placed it in the next tent. So it looked like that was their tent. Everything was identical. And the next day, we've got these two tents that transverse all the way through. And you can see the South Africans coming out. And they went to turn to the tent that we were in. And you could see them go. And they just looked and kind of went. And they knew that was their tent. But then when they looked at the tent next to it, it was done out exactly as they left it. And literally, they were standing there scratching their heads going, I'm sure it was in that tent. <laughs> so it's not the first time I've done the tent trick. I've done that a few times. Mate, I want to want to focus on going back to coaching and more sort of generically. And a question that I have for you is, what does, what does coaching mean to you? <clears throat> um, my wife put it best. We had a few people around the house this was ages ago and my wife said to them if Joe wasn't being paid for what he did he'd still do it because he'd do it for nothing and I and I have done for years and I would do it again um why so it'd be easy for me to say that 
I love developing people, and that's kind of your cliche. Oh, it's great. I love. I love. Actually, it's good for me. It really does help me. It helps me on a day-to-day basis because it gives me something to get up for. It gives me a focus. Um, and if if I do anything, I'm generally very committed to doing it, which is if, if someone asked me to, when they first asked me to do Invictus, I couldn't have committed the time that I needed. So I didn't do it. Regardless of how much I would have loved to do it, I wouldn't do it. But when I did have the time to do it, I knew I could focus on it. It's like the job that I've got here at the university. It's two and a half days a week. But you know what? I'll spend seven days a week making sure it's right. Um, so I really like having that sort of focus on something to do with. So it genuinely, I don't know how people, I'm supposed to be retired, by the way. Um, I don't know how people sit at home and watch Homes Under the Hammer all day. You know, I did it for three months when lockdown was on and I was genuinely drinking three bottles of wine a week and a couple of bottles of gin just because that's all there was to do. Um, so although I, I love do what I do coaching-wise, I also love how it makes me feel because I do massively get a buzz out of it. And I like the environment, you know, being around people like that. And they're not athlete sports people people say oh they're really positive people most of the time they're not because they're constantly either being critiqued or critiquing themselves about not being as good as they want to be and I think that's the difference and you asked me earlier on about you know working with you know professional athletes in a professional environment or working with the sort of the beneficiaries from Invictus the beneficiaries from Invictus even though they're critical of themselves when they see some of the steps that they take with development etc it is genuine just excitement because all of a sudden you know a barrier is gone you know Gaz Hennis um, when I got him to run a 60 and then an 80 and then a run a 100 and he, he, he couldn't walk when I met him in Bath you know he was on sticks you know, all of a sudden, you know, you've got someone and his, his mum trying to record Gaz running in floods of tears and you can hear her crying in the background because she'd never thought she'd see him run. You know, so this, so and that is great. Now that, for me, is, look, there's loads of great coaches all over the world that have never had any accolades for what they've done because they've been doing the hard graft, the, the grassroots stuff, doing things, and they're probably amazing coaches. And the ones of us that are lucky to have someone and follow them all the way through, you know, to win medals or get some sort of notoriety. Actually, quite often, we're probably not the best coaches, because the best coaches are the ones in there, grafting it out at grassroots, doing stuff, and being involved with the Invictus athletes really humbles you as a coach because it's an amazing environment to be in because there's such I mean there's, there's still highs and lows and ups and downs in but it's just such an incredible environment so that's for me it's I suppose it's the buzz that I get out of that mate it's a really interesting perspective and I've mate and I 
appreciate your your time this morning, mate. It's uh it's been a long overdue catch up, albeit sort of more formally. But yeah, it's uh I look back on look back on those days with really really fond memories, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can see each other again soon. Yeah, but the next podcast has to be a funny one. Oh, there's, right. quite, there's a lot more funny stories that we've got. Deal, mate. I'll hold you to that. Joe McDonald version two. <laughs> if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast channel for updates on new releases. And why not leave a review on your podcast provider and follow us on Instagram on the at Can't Can Will page to show your support. Thanks, legends. Thanks, legends.